We're going to be reading out of Mark chapter 1 today. Mark 1, 1 through 8. I think it's such a privilege and always an awesome thing to be able to go into the Word of God and just to see what He is saying to us. I mean, if you go in with a hunger and a passion to see Jesus, you will find Him and He will meet you. And it is awesome. Mark chapter 1, verse starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Mighty God, Heavenly Father, we just glorify you today and we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as your children and just worship you, Lord God. For today is all about you, Lord God. It is not about a Super Bowl. It's not about anything else. It is about you to your glory. That every day of our lives, Lord God, will be set apart to you, wholly surrender to you, Lord God. That we walk worthy of the calling to which you've called us, Lord God. That we have the opportunity as your children, Lord God, to be part of your plan, Lord God. To do such awesome things in this world for you that you receive the glory in all of it, Lord God. I lift every person here up today, Lord God, who may be struggling through the trials of life, Lord God. Who feel like they are beaten down, like there's no hope, there's nothing left, Lord God. But I pray today that they will know through the power of your word through the power of Jesus Christ, through the blood of the mighty Lamb of God, that they are set free, they are redeemed, they have liberty, they have freedom, Lord God, to to work through the power of your love, the power of your love pouring into their lives, Lord God. I pray today that you will raise them up. You, Jesus, are the resurrection and the life. You raise them up. You raise us up each and every day. And I pray, Lord God, today that they will go forth in victory, knowing that they overcome through the mighty blood of Jesus Christ, that today, Lord God, the field is set, Lord God, the giants are there. Will you go out and meet the giants under the power of Almighty God because He is alive today forever. And today we overcome. We overcome through the mighty blood of Jesus and we just glorify Your holy name today, Lord God, for you are worthy. You are worthy, Lord God. And we as your children just praise your holy name. We thank you, Lord God Almighty, for the power of your word, that the promises of your word in Jesus Christ are yes and amen in 2 Corinthians 2. Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we are overcomers through the blood of Jesus Christ. That I say to you today, who are broken, who are fallen, who are in the ashes, that today God will raise you up. Go to Him and ask Him, for He will lift you up and raise you up and set you on a high place. Because He is God Almighty and His arm is mighty. The mighty arm of God will raise you up. I pray for all those today who do not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus. I pray today, Lord God, 
that they know that you are interested in them. You know the, the count of the hairs on their head. You know, Lord God, you, are, you want to know them. You want to have intimate relationship with them that they may know that you are God Almighty, that you want to know them. You wish that none should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of repentance, of salvation, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that they may know that place in their hearts today, Lord God, that you want to know them. And again, Lord God, we just lift your name high. We glorify you in knowing, God, that we are overcomers through Jesus Christ. It is through you and you alone. We glorify your name. We lift it high. And I pray, Lord God, that the church will just grab a hold of the excitement and the enjoyment, Lord God, that it is in you, Lord God, that this life can be the greatest life ever when we know Jesus, that we have God Almighty, the Holy Spirit living within us, Lord God, that we can do what you asked us to do under your power and is your power alone, Lord God. We magnify your name, we glorify, we lift you high, for you are worthy, worthy of all of our praise. And we give you the glory and we pray, Lord God, that the word will go forth. It will not return void. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I can pray. <laughs> well, we start a new book this morning. I invite you to, to take a look at the, the Gospel of Mark. And I just want to remind you, gosh, it was probably uh, sometime around Christmas. I, I shared a little bit. We're going to go through this Gospel, and as we work our way through the Gospel, I just want us to take the opportunity to remember kind of the things that were going on, what was happening uh, historically at the time when we see Mark. Mark's the first gospel written. Probably, you know, the closest to the event of any other book. Um, Mark, we know, was a disciple of Peter. In fact, the, the Marcion uh, uh, prologue tells us that he put Peter's uh, sermons um, to writing. That he wrote them. And Part of his journey, probably about the time of the crucifixion of Peter, leads to, uh, to Mark writing the gospel. First one. And you say, well, I don't remember Mark in the twelve disciples. Yeah, he's not one of those guys. He was hanging out with them. Uh, we read them and uh, he gives a little hint to who he is in Mark chapter 14. When we get there, we'll talk about it a little bit. But he talks about a young man who was there at the arrest of Jesus, who uh, was just wearing a linen robe. And when the soldiers tried to grab him, they stripped him. They pulled the robe off him, and he went running naked. He was the first streaker. That's why, that's why he didn't tell us who he was, because he didn't want anybody to... Some of them stories you just want to let go, you know. Yeah, I'm the one who ran naked from the arrest. That's, that's my claim to fame. But God anointed him to, to write the scripture and to give to us the first account of the synoptic gospels that we're going to study. And as we look, uh, he gives us the title in the first verse. In the very first verse, he says, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not the gospel of Mark. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the beginning of that gospel. As we look at Mark, Mark's going to write to us 
from the point of view of a slave, of the common man. And if you're a slave or a common man, nobody cares who your great-grandpa was. So he has no genealogy. He just starts with the gospel. As the gospel was taught, by the way, in the Old Testament. He lays that concept out for us. So as we consider that, back around Christmas time, I shared a little bit with you about what was going on during what we call the 400 silent years. The time between the, the book of Malachi being written and Mark. And what happened during that time to, that made it the perfect time for the Lord to, to come. The Bible says at the right time, at the time that was appointed, He came. Jesus Christ was made manifest in the flesh. So we'll, we'll start in Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse 1, lays out for us. What do I do with my glasses? Oh, that's what I do with them. It's rough getting old, let me tell you. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and like the launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. So Malachi begins, you see the, the children of Israel are in the place when Malachi is written, where their offerings are defiled, where the priesthood is a mess. They've lost their focus on God. And Malachi, the book, is going to end with a curse. In fact, if we just... Move over to chapter 4. In chapter 4 it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and they will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves, And you will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And the Old Testament ends. It ends with a promise of judgment. It ends with the promise of the coming of Messiah. It ends with the promise of the coming of Elijah. It ends with the promise of the coming of a messenger, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then, silence, no more prophets. Then we just have history rolling on for 400 years. Babylon was the chief power in those days. In fact, as we're studying on Sunday night, as we work our way through the book of Daniel, Jason's taking us through Daniel on Sunday nights. In fact, there will be Sunday night tonight. So we don't cancel church for the Super Bowl. Works the other way. They should cancel a Super Bowl for church. But that's my opinion. But nonetheless, 
Daniel tells us, gives us his incredible historical view of what's going to happen during those 400 years. Babylon's the chief power. Daniel finds himself as one of the wise men under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel's such a wise man that he starts a new order. They call the order the Magi. That sound familiar to you? Anybody remember the Christmas story? There are three Magi who come from the East. Three wise men. Well, we don't know how many, but that's our tradition. I see all these people going, three? What are you saying three for? I'm going to get them. Oh. The wise men coming from the East, the Magi, where did they learn about the prophecy of the coming of Messiah? They learned from Daniel. Daniel taught them. Those were his wise guys. Look it up. Study Daniel. He's going he's gonna to develop the order that will become the Magi, from which will come the wise men who are looking for the birth of the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords at this time. So it's interesting. Daniel writes throughout Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 11, he tells us that Babylon is not going to stay in power. In fact, in Daniel, I want to say Daniel chapter 2, he tells us that. But Babylon is not going to stay in power. There's going to be a Medo-Persian empire. And that Medo-Persian empire, two groups that are gathered together, is going to be like this giant bear that's higher on one side than the other because the, the Persians are going to take over. They're going to be more powerful than the Medes. And Daniel's actually going to serve the Medo-Persian Empire for a while. But then during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire, there's going to come this guy, Philip of Macedon. Macedon, Macedonia. Anyways, you guys know what I'm talking about. And he's going to start to unite the Greek city-states, bringing them together. He has a famous son. Come on, everybody knows his name, right? Alexander the Great. Yeah, Daniel writes about him too. And Alexander the Great comes and he deposes the the Medo-Persian Empire. And we enter into a Greek Empire. The Greek rule, that area of the world during this period of time. And Alexander, as he's ruling, it's interesting because Josephus tells us a story about him going down to Jerusalem. His desire is when he gets down to Jerusalem to conquer Jerusalem on his way down to Egypt. When he stops in Jerusalem the night before he has a dream about some guy wearing funny clothes coming out and telling him something. And the next day, Jadua, the high priest in Jerusalem, went out to talk to Alexander the Great. It's not in the Bible. Josephus tells us. So Josephus says, Jadua came out and Alexander the Great said, you know, I had a dream that you were going to have something to tell me about me. So he's a little narcissistic. But nonetheless, he stands there and Jadua says, yeah, I do. And he opens up the book of Daniel. And he tells them the prophecies of Daniel about Alexander the Great. About this great conqueror from Greece who was going to conquer the world. And Alexander decided not to conquer Jerusalem. He just went down to Egypt and whooped them. But you know, Daniel also told us that Alexander the Great was going to die. He wasn't going to have any children. And that they were going to divide his kingdom between his four generals. You guys know what happened? Yeah, that's what happened. Alexander the Great died, young man, didn't have any children, so he divided his kingdom between his four generals. Two that are important biblically are the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Guess who talks about those? You're right, Daniel. I don't know how you guys are just bright, bright people. 
Daniel talks about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and their battles that they have between one another. But while the world is under all this Greek influence, while the Greek influence is going on, something comes into Jerusalem among the Jews called the Hellenists. You guys have heard that, right? The Hellenists. Those are Jewish people who want to kind of merge into the common culture of the day, which was Greek culture. So they want to leave behind some of the old traditions, and they want to move into new way of living. In fact, for their day, they would be what we would call the liberals. A sect arose to battle against them. A sect that wanted to hold on to the core values that the Jews had always had. That they wanted to hold on to their traditions. They wanted to hold on to all of those things. And that sect that arose became known as the separatists. Oh, the word is Pharisee. You guys have heard that before, haven't you? So the Pharisees become the traditionalists holding on to traditional Judaism. And the Hellenists, they take a name too. They have all the money and they have all the power and they become the Sadducees. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees arise bickering between one another. Well, the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they're, they're continuing to rule for a time. But there's this guy, comes up historically, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. You guys heard of him before, right? And the people used to call him Antiochus Epimanes, because Epimanes means the madman. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means the illustrious one. See, he thought a lot of himself as well. He's the guy who continually was going in and destroying and disrupting worship in Jerusalem. And he's the fellow who sacrificed the pig on the altar. Everybody remember? If you read First or Second Maccabees in the, uh, in the uh, Apocrypha, the, the historical writings of the Maccabees, they lay out for us that period of time. But you know, when all that was going on, a bunch of priests rose up and they took the control of what was going on in Jerusalem, and they fought to push Antiochus Epiphanes out. And Antiochus, has, had, when he wiped out the temple, he wiped out everything, put pig's blood everywhere, and, and, and so they needed to cleanse the temple. And in order to cleanse the temple, they needed to make this oil. They had this oil that had to keep the lamps lit, and they needed it. It took eight days to make more. They needed the lamp to stay lit for eight days. So you have the miracle that they celebrate Christmas time called Hanukkah. Because the oil burned for eight days so that they could purify the temple. A celebration, by the way, that is not one of the biblical feasts, but is one that Jesus celebrated. He celebrated the Feast of Lights. Well, all of that history takes place between Malachi and Mark. Now, all the trouble, they keep having trouble with this Antiochus guy. And they keep having trouble with the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So they reach out for help to Rome. And Rome says, yeah, for sure, dude, we'll help. So they came and conquered. And from that point forward, they were under... Roman rule. And then, into that, 
craziness comes Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And we look at Mark and we see in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 1, as we look again the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word the is not, is not there in the Greek, it's just the word arcade, beginning. Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look how he says it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the gospel is euangelion. It means to proclaim good news. Uh, anytime a herald came into town and he had something to tell you from the emperor, he would have called it the gospel. The euangelion, the good news to proclaim. Well, this is not the good news from the emperor. What's this the good news of? This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know that this gospel is about a person. It's about someone who existed in history, and he's defined for us right there in verse 1. First, he's called Jesus. You know, a lot of people named their kids back in those days Jesus. Well, that was a Greek name, so a Hellenist or a Sadducee might name their child Jesus. But a Pharisee would name his child Joshua. That's Jesus and Joshua are the same name. If we put it in the simplest terms, Jesus means God saves. That's what is, it's the simplest term. God saves. Joshua. You know, Joshua takes us where Moses can't. Do you think about that? Joshua takes us where Moses can't. Jesus takes us where the law can't get us. And so, his name, Jesus. Now, a lot of people think Christ is his last name. We talked about this a lot. Christ is a title. Okay? Jesus is his name. He would have been called Yeshua bar Joseph. What did that mean? Jesus, son of Joseph. So, when we look at... When we look at this name, Christ, Christos, it simply means the anointed one. Now the anointed one had a title. That was a title in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. What was that title? Mashiach. The Messiah. So when you see Jesus Christ, just think it in your head. Because a lot of times people say, I don't know why Jesus didn't just say that he was the Messiah. Man, it's in so many verses in the Bible, it's unbelievable. We just don't read it that way. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. And just in case there's any doubt who that is, because the Old Testament prophecies very clearly delineated for us who the Messiah was going to be. The Messiah was going to be the Son of God. 2,000 years after that's written, we all struggle with that idea. Because we don't understand the concept of sonship and what that means. For them, for us it means somebody born... For them, it means somebody caring about the exact nature of whomever they are a son of. Well, when we look at it, here's how it says, it lays it out for us in the Greek. There's no definite article before the word son or the word God, which means he's speaking of character and nature. So he's saying when when the title, the son of God, is read all the way through every gospel, every time we read it, it is talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who is in the exact nature and character God in the flesh. That's what he's laying out for us. So this is the beginning of the good news 
about Jesus, whose name means God saves, who is the Messiah, the promise of the Old Testament scriptures, we're going to see them in just a second, the Son of God, who is God in the flesh. All throughout the New Testament, everywhere we go, we're going to see that concept that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We're going to see it as we take a look at verse 2 in Mark. Mark uh, 1 verse 2 says, And as, <laughs> as it is written in the prophets, so this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. What's he telling us? Look, the gospel wasn't invented in the New Testament. The gospel was given to us in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New. The Old Testament prophets, all of them, spoke about this gospel, this good news, this euangelion, this thing that needed to be heralded, that Jesus Christ was coming, that He was going to save His people from their sins. So many prophecies throughout the Scripture that point to Jesus Christ as Messiah. As it is written in the prophets, (coughs) Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's going to quote two prophets, specifically here in Mark. The first one is Malachi. We read it. It should sound familiar. It was one of the first couple that we that we went through. In fact, it's Malachi 3, 1 and 2. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. He's sending a messenger. My messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. So the Lord that you're looking for, the Deliverer that you're longing for, He's going to appear in His temple. He did that, right? Come on, you guys remember the story? Jesus walks in, they're making the the Lord's house a house of thieves. And He purges the temple. And they say, man, what's up with this guy? Zeal for the Lord is, is driving Him to cleanse. What authority does He have to do these things? The Lord that you seek is going to suddenly come to His temple. But before He does, a messenger will come. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like the refiner's fire and like the launderer's soap. So the gospel message begins with John the Baptist. Who is the fulfillment, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Something they all spoke about. The gospel. The good news. The celebration. Next, he he quotes from Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, the people asked John the Baptist one time, Who are you, Elijah? He said, No. Are you the Christ? He said, No. Who are you then? You remember what he said? I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. That's what John the Baptist declared himself here in Isaiah 40 verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who is he preparing the way for? According to Malachi and according to Isaiah, he's preparing the way for Messiah. Who is Messiah? What's it say? Prepare the way for who? Prepare the way of the... Look at the word. Lord, right? Is it capitalized? Yeah, so is there any question who that is? 
Capital L-O-R-D. That's God's name. Y-H-V-H. Yahweh. Or Yehovah. God's proper name. That can only refer to Almighty God. Not some underling. Almighty God. John the Baptist was preparing the way for Almighty God. He was preparing the way for the Lord. This is what the Old Testament prophets had laid out for them. Messiah, God Himself in the flesh. Next we see the appearance of John the Baptist. Look at verse 4, Mark 1. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. Now several things come out from this section of Scripture. One of those is the message. What was the message that John preached? Sometimes I think we think this is different. The message that John preached is the same gospel that Jesus preached. It's the same gospel that we see the apostles preaching. It's just they have a greater understanding of the events that are taking place. What's John going on? He's telling the people, prepare your heart, Messiah is coming. Prepare your heart, Messiah is coming. Later on, they're going to say, prepare your heart, Messiah came. He's come. But the message, the overall message to the people was the same. A message of repentance. That's this is where we struggle so much today. This is where we struggle so much today because we think repentance is being sorry. I'm sorry for all the dumb things that I do. But that's not repentance. Repentance is a word of action. Repentance is a change of direction. Repentance is hearing that which God has declared and agreeing with Him. Changing the way I am going to follow Him. Right? Jesus is going to say to all His disciples, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. This is a message of repentance, a change of conduct, a change of attitude for the forgiveness of their sins. His message also is this, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. Look, if the king is standing next to you, guess what? The kingdom is near. If the king is next to you, the kingdom is near. Here's the other thing that we, that we sometimes forget when we talk about the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. You remember what he said in John chapter 3? In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus was talking to, to Nicodemus. People call this section of scripture Nick at night. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot what? Cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it. Now Nicodemus is confused. <clears throat> he doesn't understand the phrase born again. So Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Context demands that he's talking about a second physical birth, isn't he? Does a man have to be born twice physically? How does that happen? So Jesus defines it for him. In verse 5, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is physical birth, that's what they're discussing, unless one is born of water, And the Spirit, He cannot, what's the word? Enter the kingdom 
of God. So if you're born again, that means you've been born physically. You have to exist to be born again. And you've been born spiritually. Then you enter the kingdom of God. You are part of His kingdom. In fact, you are part of the body of Christ, aren't you? And if you're part of the body of Christ, then, then where you, Christ is in your midst. Right? We have this fondness in the church for saying things like, well, you know, where two or three are gathered. But that's true. But when we talk about two or three being gathered, we're talking about two or three gathered for judgment. When you have one person who's a believer, Jesus is there. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So if he takes up residence in you, he's there. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, I, I believe those are synonymous terms, are near. Because he's near. The king is here. So, John was saying, the kingdom is coming. He's saying, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. The motivation for turning was the kingdom of heaven. And then he points to the Christ. Matthew 3.11 Listen to how he points to the Christ. He says, we're we're going to read it in a moment in Mark. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He points to Jesus. He points to the Christ. That was his role. Prepare the way. Prepare the hearts of the people. Lead them in repentance to turn from their sin and receive the truth of their Messiah who is come. And it says, He's mightier than I. That's why John would say, I'm not the Christ. And He comes in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus is going to tell us that, but He's not the Elijah who is to come. He comes in the spirit of Elijah because he's the messenger who comes before the the Messiah. But Elijah does come. (laughs) Revelation. We should be there in a few months when we finish Mark and a couple other books. We'll get over there to, to Revelation. But when we talk about the two witnesses, one of the witnesses, remember what the prophecy said. That Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about fire. How's Jesus going to baptize? Two ways. The Holy Spirit and fire are not synonymous terms. That's not synonymous terms. He says He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and He will baptize you with fire. Fire is judgment. All judgment has been committed to the Son. Who judges this world? God? Yes, but God who? God the Son. God the Son judges it all. In fact... He talks about, John the Baptist in his message that he shares, talks about that judgment. Look at verse 12. Matthew 3, 12. It says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn, and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He defines the fire for us, so you don't have to just take my word for it. The fire that Jesus will baptize is a fire of judgment. Because he's going to say, no man comes to the Father except by me. There is one perfect sinless life that we must have imputed to our account if we will stand before God. 
And that perfect, sinless life is God the Son, Jesus Christ. So we must, by faith, receive that gift in order to escape. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, He lays out, look, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. I came to save, not condemn. Condemnation's done. You come through me, or you don't come at all. This is the message of John the Baptist, a message that in, in which or through which he emphasized judgment. In fact, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, talking to those Pharisees, he said then, he said to the multitudes who came out <clears throat> to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What's John the Baptist talking about? Judgment. What's going to be judged? Sin. Either sin is judged by Jesus Christ on the cross for you and me and everyone who believes, or you will be judged for sin. You can read all about it in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Scripture goes on to tell us that of the people that he reached. Think about it, the people that he reached. Let's look at Mark chapter 1 again. It says... Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him who were <clears throat> and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. These are the people that he reached. What were they? They were being baptized. What was being baptized all about? They had a system of baptism in those days. Any proselyte who was becoming a Jew would be baptized. Someone didn't baptize you. You were baptized. You baptized yourself. It's called a mikvaot. A mikvaot is a, a, there's tons of them in, in Israel, is a, kind of looks like a, like a jacuzzi. With steps going down into it, and steps coming up on the other side. And when you went down, it was a symbol. You'd go down into the water, you would be clothed in your old clothes. You would go down under the water and come up, walk up the other side. Where you would strip your clothes off and burn them and put on new clothes. So when you hear Paul the Apostle saying to put on Christ, put on the new man, take off the old man. It was all a symbol of baptism that they had had all through the Old Testament. So when John the Baptist comes, the difference is John the Baptist is baptizing Jews. It's a baptism of repentance, dying to the old life and being raised for the new. Turning your back on your sin and turning your eyes to Messiah. That was the baptism of John. Turning your eyes from your sin and putting your eyes on Messiah. So these people, they were all coming. They were saying the faith, the evidence of their faith was, I believe that what John's saying is true, and I need to get my heart right and turn from my sin and look for Messiah. They believed, and the, the, the truth behind their faith was seen in baptism. Same way we see it in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 38 through 41. <clears throat> you guys can t- go and check that out. They were also, Scripture tells us, they were also confessing their sin. They were confessing their sin. First John 1, 8 and 9. The Christian's bar of soap. Look what it says. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's an important phrase. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is probably the biggest problem, um, the, literally the biggest problem in, uh, in Christianity today. Because a lot of us sit in that right there. We say we have no sin. But I'm not married, I'm living with my girlfriend. But I say I don't have no sin. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you have sin. So if I say I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself. And what's the next part? Truth's not in me. Who Jesus said, I am the way, the what? And the? So if the truth's not in me, that's a big problem. Isn't it a big problem? And we want to we wanna sweep that under a carpet somewhere and say it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. This is the, the major problem, the major division in the church today, the struggle with sin. It's not okay. It's not okay anywhere. <clears throat> if we say we have no sin, we lie. And the truth is not in us. Jesus very clearly said we are all sinners. Now, <clears throat> in the next verse, verse 9, we flip over to 1 John 1, 8. Now we look at verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins. Everybody see it? If we confess our sins, the word is homo legeo. Homo legeo means I say the same thing he says. I believe the same thing he believes. It doesn't say I justify my sin. It says I confess it. That means I confess that God is right and I am wrong. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Do we get that? Repentance is part. You cannot have one without the other. Repentance, that means I let go of my sin. And I say, you know what? What God said is what God said. <clears throat> I'm going to follow that. If we confess with our mouth, Romans 10.9 says, and believe in our heart, we will be saved. Now what the scripture declares? If we confess homo. Legeo. In 1 John 1, 9 it says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is God up there shaking His fist at you saying, Look, you know, I'm not going to forgive you. That's not what He's saying. The problem's on our end. We're trying to excuse it. Doesn't matter how I live or what I'm doing or what I'm saying or how I'm acting. It just doesn't matter. Because God forgives everything. No, God forgives confessed sin. That's what God forgives. So we have to confess. We have to repent. That's a change of direction. You see why the world is in opposition to Christianity today? Because unless you got some mealy mouth, weak sauce Christianity, you're going to have a line in the sand at some point that says, I can't go past this. And the world says, who are you to judge, man? I can live my life any way I want to. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. You can live your life any way you want, but you can't be saved. You can't be saved in that. Who saves me? Jesus, I don't do nothing. He does it all. I got to agree with him. I have to confess with my mouth. That Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead and I'll be saved. I have to confess 
my sin to the Lord. I'm a sinner, God. I was wrong about all these things, and you're right. And He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll make you right. That was the message of John the Baptist. That was the message of Jesus Christ. That was the message of Paul. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We confess our sin. And we see something special in the way John the Baptist lived. It said something about his dress. He was dressed in, what was it? Camel hair and a leather belt. I don't know why everybody likes to make John psycho. Every time I see John in a movie, he's psycho, huh? Wild man. And he's wearing crazy uh, uh, animal skin around his shoulder. And he's got a belt. And he, he hadn't combed his hair ever in his life. And he's got locusts hanging out of his mouth and honey dripping off his beard. <laughs> so, I don't want to ruin that picture in your mind, but... John was a Levite. He was raised a priest. He didn't live out in the wild with Sasquatch and just show up this day. But he did do something special. He did do something special. See, he grew up with all these Pharisees and Sadducees. They all knew him. That's why they asked him, what are you doing out here? He grew up with them all. And one day as the Spirit moved, He took off all those priestly garments and fancy clothes that the priests wore. Because they had fancy clothes. Everybody else couldn't afford that. And He put on the clothes of the poor. Camel skin was the poorest clothes you could get. A cloth Clothes made of camel hair and a leather belt. You know who else wore that? A guy named Elijah the Tishbite. He wore camel's hair, clothing, and a leather belt. John comes out associating with the poor. In fact, later on, he's going to ask Jesus. He's going to say, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? You guys remember? And Jesus is going to say to Amanda, don't you know the poor have the gospel preached to them? And you started it, John. You went out there and you dressed like them and you started talking about repentance and they started flocking to you and they're coming to you because they want to turn from their sin. They want to hope in something else, that this is not it, that I'm not living for for the rules of society, but that there's something more. There's something that matters in life. It's just not this. It cannot just be this. So John told them, he dressed like them. And he ate the poorest meal you could eat. Right? That's the last time you had a locust for dinner. You know there are people in the world who do? You know everybody don't get steak? Or duck soup? Maybe you're thinking locust sounds better than duck soup. Well, He ate the food of the poor, wild honey he could pull out of a tree, locusts he could find wherever a grasshopper was hopping. He came and he ate and he associated with the poor. He associated with the humble. 
He associated with the sinner. Those priests back at the temple, they dressed in their fancy clothes, and they did their fancy service, but nobody was there. And that has become the church today. Because the people that need the message of the gospel, they're out there. They're, they're, they're across the parking lot and down the road. They're at the gas station. They're where you work. They're where you play. They're where you go. And that's where John went. That's where John went to take the gospel. In an attitude clothed in humility, the, the diet and the clothes of the poor. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. It's where we'll stop today. And he preached, and he said, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. You know, the scripture declared, <clears throat> actually the, the Babylonian Talmud tells us that a rabbi could demand anything of his teachers except that they take off his shoes. That was even too low. So, so a student would, should never have to take off or, or wash the feet of his teacher. Jesus turned that on his ear, didn't he? When he came and he clothed himself in a towel and he washed his students' feet, took off their straps of their sandals. John says, he is so much bigger than me, I don't even have the right... I'm so far below him, I don't even have the right to touch his feet. Man, he's got a a message of of honor toward the Christ, right? He's honoring who the Christ is, the Messiah. I I can't even touch his feet. In fact, in John 1.30, he said, "This This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. He pre-exists me. By the way, you know which one? They were relatives, right? John the Baptist and Jesus. You guys remember. So you think John was confused? He, he was before me. He thought maybe Jesus was born first. No, he wasn't confused. What was he saying when he said Jesus was before me? Yeah, he existed before I existed. He saw Abraham. Abraham saw his day and rejoiced in it. He pre-existed, but he was also preferred. He was also preeminent, more important. He's the one for whom all this noise is being made. He had humility. He had honor toward Christ. And then he had a knowledge of his purpose. Listen, I am the voice. What did he say? I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I will baptize you with water. John said, I'll lead you to repentance. But he's going to empower you to live the life. You get the difference? I can lead you to repentance. I can show you the word. We can read the word and we can study the word and we can do all those things. <clears throat> you can be led to the point of repentance and led to the place of confession. But it's Jesus Christ who empowers you for life. It's Jesus Christ who empowers you to live. It's Jesus Christ who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ that does that perfect work for us. John the Baptist, he, he knew his purpose. He had honor toward Christ. He, he came announcing and pronouncing the beginning. Here we go. The good news. Not about me, but Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who empowers us 
to live the life that God wants us to live. It all starts in that moment, in that place. Confession and repentance. Amen?